From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. If life is ultimately a series of milestones, this past week was a significant one in the annals of Gator lore, as the program celebrated a remarkable 250th SEC team championship. Delivered the moment the men's tennis team triumphed over Kentucky, Florida's conference dominance is unparalleled and shows no signs of slowing down. On today's show, We'll be joined by FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry to discuss that titanic achievement, the latest developments in the basketball offseason, a stressful regional for gymnastics, and big game busts in the PAT. Then, before leaving basketball season completely behind, we'll catch up with former Gator and future nuclear engineer Canyon Barry. But first, hearing that Florida hit 250 titles is impressive just as a raw number, but when you see second place is nearly 100 off the pace, it's a truly eye-popping accomplishment. So to open our roundtable with Scott and Chris, we begin by analyzing that incredible gap between the top and everyone else below. Yeah, I think that's what caught my attention the most when I did see what I think Tennessee was next, uh, about 100 behind, and then Georgia's in there. But the 250 SCC titles, uh, obviously, it's a huge accomplishment in terms of the athletic program's depth from top to bottom. It just shows the commitment to, you know, excellence that Florida has always had. That's kind of the reputation within the conference that they they want winning programs from cross country and track all the way up to football. And uh, obviously, Jerry Me Foley played a huge role in developing that culture. Scott Strickland's played a, a huge role in maintaining it. And the men's tennis team, uh, by beating Kentucky this past weekend, Adam, they clinched that 250th SEC title. Uh, that was the third program this season to do that for Florida. You had men's tennis. You had gymnastics win the regular season SEC championship and then, of course, you had the men swimming and diving, winning their ninth consecutive SEC championship, which when you look at SEC sports, every program in the conference, men, women, every school, the UF men's and swimming diving program has the most SEC titles of any program in the conference, 42. And I wrote a little blurb. I started doing a little research on this the other day, Adam, and I'm trying to figure out, like, how, why did UF develop a a good swimming program that really set a standard and helped the other athletic programs at the school build off of. And I traced it back to when they built the swimming pool here outside uh, the swamp back in 1929. And then they hired this guy, Frank Genovar, uh, to maintain and operate the pool. He creates a swim team and the rest is history. Uh, Adam, the SEC started a few years later, the Gators dominated from the start. And here we are, 90-some years later, talking about it on a podcast. And if Frank Genovar was still around, we'd have him on the podcast. But we're at least I'm glad to drop his name on here. I wonder who did the podcast with Frank Genovar back in the <laughs> It was Adam Schick. You're like the fifth or so, right, Adam? It was your 
Your grandpa? No, no, I'm, I am an original. There's only one of me. Well, that's probably um, the best. I mean, it, be that's probably that's probably true. Well, that may be more championships than either King Kong or Godzilla won in whatever <laughs> cities they they took on. But uh, you, you mentioned second place being uh, in the distance. Um, you know, as far as a rear of a year, it's it's gonna be hard. That's way back there. Tennessee at 156, Georgia in third at 150, LSU at 143, and Arkansas. Uh, which entered the league in 1992 and obviously is at 118 way back there. And uh, to your point, yes, uh, mostly track championships there for sure. Um, You know, I, I started covering this team in 1990 and I, you know, it, it became apparent early on how good this, uh, uh, this athletic department was across the board. I wasn't, you know, growing up where I grew up in Washington, D.C., it wasn't a big college town. It was a professional sports town. And then coming to school down at, at USF and then being dispatched up here and seeing the passion of Gator fans and what have you, uh, the whole sport experience. And I'm trying to think, I mean, I've covered SEC championships and national championships, uh, football, uh, 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 basketball. I've seen plenty of tennis. I've seen gymnastics. I've seen uh uh, lacrosse championships and what have you. So they call it on Twitter and all everything school. And it is in addition to being a, a top 10 university, public university. So um, proud day, uh, 250. That's a big fat number. And um, obviously that's something that, that is to be celebrated and probably won't be that, that long. It'll be a few years when we're doing, po- what number podcast are we on Adam? Uh, this is 262. So I wonder if we go to 362, um, or let's say 400 if we'll be at 300 championships by then. Hmm, wonder. Hmm. Yeah, an incredible achievement, no doubt, and, and sure that there will be more of those rolling in uh, as we go forward. I want to talk now about a, a championship that happened just a few days ago and how it relates to a conversation about Gator basketball, and that is, of course, Baylor cutting down the nets in Indianapolis, winning their first national championship And we're going to talk more about that in our PAT, but the part I want to pull out here, uh, Chris, especially is the way that Baylor won that, especially when it comes to roster construction, which is a huge talking point with Florida right now. Well, I mean, you can look at uh, uh, some of their their better players, obviously, were transfer transfer players, starting with uh, Macy Oteague, who came from uh, uh, UNC Asheville, um, one of their better players. but it's not just Baylor, Adam. I mean, eight of 20 starters in the final four were transfers. Wow. So um, when you look at the way teams are building rosters right now, uh, this is this is the direction of college sports. I mean, I just I tweeted out something in a, a SEC transfer portal watch. Um, uh, there are there are eight teams in the Southeastern Conference, Adam, that have as many players in the portal or more as Florida does. I'll go down the list. Georgia, Ole Miss, and Missouri lead the way with five. Hmm. Auburn, Florida, South Carolina, Texas A&M, and Vandy are at four. Mississippi State is at three. Kentucky and Tennessee are at two. Arkansas, LSU are at one. Alabama is at zero. And my guess is one of the reasons they're at zero, they have some seniors that are exiting. And so, uh, you know, we'll see what happens there. I think that's subject to change. Um, Certainly they had transfers who came in and helped them this year. Um, Something tells me that uh, that there will be some disgruntled players looking for playing time in Tuscaloosa, but that remains to be seen. But I think that number will change. I mean, for all I know, Florida will have another player going to transfer report. I don't know that. All, what I do know is this is the way – this is uh, now a mechanism 
for building rosters. And you're talking about a transfer portal that has over 1,200 players in it. That's a lot of players to be had. The Gators already have some commitments. We'll be able to talk about that down the line when their names are on the dotted line, by the way. Uh, but that'll be something to look forward to and hopefully before podcast number 300. Um, but uh, uh, Florida will rebuild its roster through the transfer portal. They will get some very good players. Uh, they will get players that are uh, from mid-major programs. They will get players from very high major programs and from power uh, five or six conferences, depending on how you look at that. So um, that is the situation with this program right now. Um, and that is a situation with a lot of programs right now. And it's just kind of the, the way of the college basketball world. Is it the preferred way that um, we can sit here and debate it? I think in a perfect world, you get a mix of uh, developmental high school players that can come in and maybe feel their way up a roster, except um, a lot of them don't see their roles that way. If they come in and they're not starting or playing 20 minutes a game, they're going to look elsewhere now. That's just, that's just the nature of, of, of the beast right now. And so um, Mike White's dealing with that. His coaching staff is dealing right that. And while we're talking about uh, uh, attrition and transition and what have you, Florida is still uh, down one coach. So maybe before uh, podcast number 300, and I'm sure before podcast number three, we'll be able to talk about the next uh, Florida assistant coach who will replace Jordan Mincy, who, by the way, got one of Florida's transferring players. Osayo Sifu announced that he will play at Jacksonville University next season for his former coach. And I think in the last week, we also saw the uh, Omar Payne to Illinois move as well which was definitely a higher profile than Osifo. But we're starting to see these these things shake out. And again, talking about transfers from last year, uh, Andrew Nemhard found himself in the national championship game after transferring to Gonzaga, albeit did not have a, a particularly good night. Neither did the Zags overall, um, which again, quick tease, we will talk about more in just a few minutes. Another angle to this I wanted to talk about, Scott, I know it relates to a story you're working on about Scott Strickland and his connection uh, to Baylor and sort of, you know, providing some insight into how a program gets from where it was to where it is now. Yeah, Adam, uh, one of the connections, you know, with Baylor is to Scott Strickland. He worked at Baylor early in his career as a, a, a spokesman for the athletic department. And during his career there at Baylor, uh, really the, the most tragic chapter in the school's athletic department's history happened when one player murdered another player. And then later on, it was discovered that Coach Dave Bliss at the time had, you know, was committing some violations and he had lied to the administration there uh, during this period. And it really, the program unraveled there in the summer of 2003. And I talked to uh, Strickland this week about what that was like for him because, you know, here he was Monday night watching Baylor win their first ever national title. And Scott Drew, uh, as their head coach, you know, he's the guy who took over the program back then. And in this day and age, you don't see coaches stay at programs that long anymore. But, I mean, he took over. I can't think of a, a more difficult situation to, to walk into as a, a head coach as – and to take over that Baylor program back in 2003. And, you know, Strickland was saying it, it, it kind of was a strange period for him because before all that broke, he was already in talks with Kentucky to become their – basically their basketball communications uh, uh, specialist there working with Tubby Smith. But it was taking Kentucky a long time to finalize that position. And during that period, of course, all this news broke at Baylor – and it was a very difficult time for Strickland. He became the 
the de facto Baylor University spokesman. He said there was more than 100 media members in town, most of them news. And we're not talking about the local newspaper. We're talking right. about, you know, 60 Minutes, Good Morning America. He was saying that he'd never even heard of a pre-interview before. But, you know, there was all these, like, Good Morning America, these morning talk shows. They would want to, you know, basically ask him questions so they could pass on his answers to the morning show host. So it was, it was just a different experience for him. Uh, and anyway, long story short, Baylor moved pretty qu- quick despite all those circumstances to hire Scott Drew back in the day. And well, on his final day there in Baylor, uh, before he left Kentucky, Scott Drew uh, comes into the office there and, uh, and meets with uh, the president of Baylor and, and Strickland. And the, the president had asked Strickland to basically create all these talking points and stuff for the new coach. And he was like, wow, this is my last thing here. So Drew comes in and, uh, you know, all excited, all upbeat, still the same guy he is today, according to Strickland. But he says something about, you know, you'll be around here with me. We'll get this thing and turn around. Strickland goes, actually, this is my last day. I'm fine <laughs> tomorrow. So it was just one of those things where the two guys, though, have, uh, have you know, have stayed in contact over the years. And, and uh, Strickland was saying that, really, he's not surprised even though that situation was as bad as you can imagine for a coach to come into, he said Scott Drew was just right away. You could tell he had such a positive energy and an idea of what he wanted. And here it is. They, they're national champs. So kind of a Gator connection there to that Baylor national title that a lot of Florida fans might not know about. And the, the beauty of the world of sports, especially those who work in it, for people that, that don't know is – you tend to have a lot of stops along your way, especially in college. So there's often connections you would never even imagine uh, between guys who, again, who would think there's a connection between Scott Drew and Scott Strickland? And you have to go back 20 years to find it. But generally, people cross paths. There's always six or less degrees at some point in the world of college athletics, especially. Um, Scott, I know you've been busy this week also writing about, uh, about the Gator Gymnastics team. They're on their way to national championships, but not without some drama. Uh, a, a little bit of a consternation in Athens on their, their road to make it to the national championships. Yeah, it was, Adam. I think, you know, you get to those stages and you just never know how the, uh, the pressure and the situation is going to unfold. And Naya Reed, who's been great all year, she just couldn't get her steps down on the vault, and it was it was kind of weird to see. But so that put them in a little bit of an early hole. Obviously, they were without Trinity Thomas in some events. She's still nursing the ankle injury, getting closer. They think maybe by nationals she'll be full go again. But so you had those two factors. You they've they've got a couple of other injuries, and it was a it was a tight Athens regional. But the Gators rallied at the end with the help of Nia Reed, who I mentioned earlier. I mean, she had a, a great floor routine to help help the Gators score a lot of points and make up some points late in the uh, meet. And they survived, won the Athens Regional, and now this is a this is a team that you know it was it was looking smooth all year, Adam, until really the the last meet against Alabama when Thomas got hurt. And since then, it's kind of been one hurdle after the, uh, after the next. And I, I think they showed a lot of resilience uh, in the Athens regional to do what they did to come out of there with the title. And now they're going to have to take that 
down to uh, the finals and and see if they can win the program's first national title in what six years since 2015. It would be the first for Jenny Rowland in her time here, and really it just goes back to I think last year. Uh, you know, they never got to this point, and they had such a, a really deep team back then as well. And a lot of what they're trying to do this year is not only for 2021's team, but 2020 as well. And I, I think they still have the team, Adam, but they're going to have to have some key performances. And if they have Trinity Thomas back, um, it might be a little easier. If she's not, then they may still, you know, and Gator fans might be biting their fingernails like they were with, at the Athens Regional. Yes, we will see again. That's next week. They take a, a little gap between there. Also, uh, NCAA volleyball starts next week. We'll talk about that too uh, when we get there. Now, I want to turn our attention to the PAT, which, as promised with the earlier tease, takes us back to Indianapolis in the national championship game. What a weird couple nights. You have Saturday night with, you know, one of the great moments in March Madness history for those that stayed up late were able to see it. And the expectations were so high for the two number ones, the top two teams all season, Gonzaga and Baylor going head to head. And then it was just a complete bust of a game was not competitive from literally the first minutes of the game. It was not competitive and it never really got more interesting. Uh, So what it made me think about is other high-profile games, events that you were really excited about seeing uh, and just just did not play out the way anybody thought and ultimately uh, did not satisfy. Well, Adam, for a, a layman and a low-info basketball person, you may not have appreciated that game the other night. But um, <laughs> as a person who watches a lot of basketball and is around a lot of basketball – Seeing what Baylor did to Gonzaga was fascinating. Uh, that was a that was just a, a clinic they put on, and um, I'm not saying it. Uh, yeah, I, I will say it's surprising. I, I definitely thought Baylor could have won the game going in. I wasn't one of these people say oh, Gonzaga is going to kill. I never never thought that. But the takeaway from that was almost you wonder if they if they played ten times if Baylor wouldn't win seven of them or so because their quickness the ability to play defense, their ability to close on three-point shooters, so much better in trans. If you hadn't watched them, you, you, yeah, I, I'd seen them a few times. And, of course, they were here last year. And I, I made the point, I think, to Scott, if I went back on my Twitter timeline and saw the, the fans tweeting at me about how embarrassing it was to lose to Baylor at home in the SEC uh, uh, Big 12 Challenge last year. They were number one in the country, by the way, when they came here last year. Florida lost by 11. Um but uh, uh, just just to your point, I want I want to say I enjoyed that game just to watch because I, I was so stunned about how perfectly Baylor was able to play, and I kept thinking, you know, Gonzaga. I kept saying, like, get it to ten at halftime, which they did. Yeah. Uh, get it to eight, maybe inside ten minutes. I think they got it to nine, and every time Baylor had an answer, and their their explosiveness. Uh, the hyena way they play defense was just an, 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 an incredible thing. Now, to your question, something that was hyped up that was really disappointing. When were you born again? 1988, last time I checked. Every Super Bowl before that. <laughs> you know, because Super Bowls didn't start getting good, um, I want to say, until the yeah, late 90s. Probably 2000, the Tennessee, the Titans and the Rams. That's right. started That's getting right. interesting. That's right. I mean, and I think the John... John Elway helicopter one was, I think I remember it being 
kind of close. Um, but I mean, so many of them were, were awful. There, there were a couple that were competitive, even, even the ones that were competitive that were close games were kind of like bad football games. There's a Dallas Baltimore game early on. I want to say it was Super Bowl four, um, that had a bunch of really like weird plays in it. Uh, uh, you know, the Lynn Swan game with some great catch. I think it was a 21-17 game, which is about Super Bowl ten was a competitive game with some with some good plays. And uh, but most of those Super Bowl games were blowouts. All the just about all the 49er wins were blowouts. Uh, Steve Young, I mean, his, his was like 56 to 24 or something like that uh, uh, when, when he won the Super Bowl over the Chargers. But it wasn't until I went to a a few really, really exciting ones. The the Patriots and Carolina Panthers was a really good Super Bowl. And then they, they got a little better after that. But uh, to just to the original point, there was so much hype for Super Bowls over the years that turned out to be dud games. And people blame them on the on the two weeks in between the lag and the 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 barrage of media that, that players weren't didn't want to deal with and maybe it got overwrought and overhyped and what have you. But uh that would be the first thing I would point to. I'm sure, I'm sure Scott, who's a little more diversified and bouncing around from baseball and hockey and what have you, may have a few others. You know, Chris, I, I kind of probably side more with Adam here in terms of the the game. I understand. I understand. Because you you all are from the same ilk of, well, of not you're not not real basketball aficionados, is what I might say. I mean, I love we're mere simpletons. I love the sport. Uh, I think uh, it's a great sport, and I, I just, I, as a general interest fan who, you know, it was Baylor against Gonzaga. Obviously, I have no connection to either program. Uh, I didn't grow up really familiar with either program because they weren't when I was younger. I mean, they they weren't what they are today. So I wanted to see this matchup that everyone was talking about that was supposed to happen what four months ago, mm-hmm. uh, and it didn't happen because of COVID. And I, I think if it had happened back then, this game probably would have had a little different tone because Baylor would have hammered them back then and Gonzaga would not have been undefeated. So, But the fact that Gonzaga was undefeated, I was curious to see, could this team pull off what, becoming the first undefeated champion since Indiana back when I was a little kid? And didn't happen. All credit goes to Baylor. And, to, and what Chris was saying, I mean, it was fascinating to watch how good they were doing what they do. I mean, I don't know if I've seen a, a team with the closing speed on defense that I saw on, on Monday night. So it was an impressive performance. And They, had two, they got two players uh, that will be 24 years old this year. Hmm. How about uh, that? Those are grown-ass men is what they would say out on the field, right? They, they definitely yes. are. They And they got games. So yes. uh, congrats to the Bears. But, you know, I want to – like when it's an event like that, I want drama. I want – entertainment especially if if i don't have a rooting interest but i still love the drama of sports so that's particularly why i i like doing what i do uh, so you go back to like chris was saying those super bowls were so crappy when i was younger. they were they always let us down uh i remember one year what was the 49ers and broncos and i'm thinking this is going to be a great game it turned out to be a flop the dolphins 55 to 10 yeah, was my, first, was my first live Super Bowl was the 49ers against the Broncos. And the very first play of the game, Montana goes back to was a 70 yard touchdown pass to Jerry Rice and the, and, and the, and, and the game was over. Basically. It happened every year back then. 
And then it like, you know, it did get a lot better. So younger folks like Adam, he doesn't remember all these, but I mean, gosh, when you're talking about living up to the hype, I mean, you can take a lot of Super Bowls in recent years. I mean, I still think one of the most amazing Super Bowls I've ever seen was the one between the Falcons and Patriots a few years ago. I mean, oh, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, that was if you if you're not if you weren't into that game in the fourth quarter, you might as well not even like sports. Uh, and I, you know, I know that's probably hard for Adam because he's a Falcons fan. I wasn't but, feeling great in that fourth quarter, if yeah, I remember correctly. He, yeah, as someone who just was watching for the drama sure, and entertainment sure. value, it was great. But I, and you know, I've covered uh, other sports, and I, I've seen that I've covered some Red Sox Yankees postseason series. Uh, I, I think my all-time favorite moment as a fan or working was that Red Sox Yankees 2003 when. Aaron Boone, who's now the Yankees manager, hit the home run to walk off. Uh, I think we've talked about that. I mean, I don't know if I can top that, you know? Yeah, I was thinking about this, and specifically, you know, Super Bowls have often been uh, been bust, but I thought specifically about two, it was 2014, the Seahawks-Broncos Super Bowl, because that was a case where you had, that was one of those number one offense against number one defense which side will win out? What will the game look like? And what it looked like was a, a nightmare because I don't know if you guys remember the first play of the game. Uh, they snapped the ball over Peyton's head, took a safety, and then quickly going into halftime, it was 22 to nothing. And this was reversed. This was the, the defense was scoring and the offense was not scoring. Um, and then Percy Harvin had a kick return out of halftime. I mean, they were up 36 to nothing on the Broncos. Uh, going to the end of the third quarter. So that was a game where, again, you wanted to see this contrast of styles, and it just it didn't happen at all because one team just totally cratered, uh, which is sort of how it felt watching Gonzaga early on with how they struggled to take care of the ball and the runouts and whatnot. But you always, in these big matchups, you want to see teams play to their identity and play to their strengths. And when that doesn't happen on a stage that big, I think it's it's disappointing for everybody. I, I can't tell you how many texts I got from people Monday saying how disappointed they were that it was just such a bad game. Wow. You know, as far as entertainment value, just there wasn't much to be had. So I'll tell you another one that's right at the height of my list, and this would be as a fan and as a just spectator who was very interested in the game from both sides. I mean, the Gators against Nebraska in 95, I mean, yeah. I thought that had the a classic making of a game, and and it just fell apart for the Gators. Obviously, the next year was a lot better, but I still remember being excited all day for that game because I thought, and not only I thought the Gators could win, I thought it would be a classic football game and kind of a contrast in styles. And the Nebraska style was unfortunately a lot more dominant that night. Well, one thing that's for sure. This segment is never a bust. That's thanks to you guys. Thank you for bringing it, as always, to everyone out there who wants to keep tabs on what these guys are doing, what they're covering. You can follow them on Twitter, at Gators Scott, at Gators Chris, and, of course, all their content can be found at FloridaGators.com. Guys, have a great rest of your week. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Adam. In terms of student-athletes that have come through the Florida program, few have been as academically ambitious as Canyon Barry. While the grad transfer and son of Hall of Famer Rick Barry was only a Gator for one season, he made it count on and off the court. So when we caught up with him recently, we began by asking him about his alternate path to UF. 
Um, yeah, first off, I got I to gotta shout out College of Charleston. You know, I, I love that school. It was such a hard decision to transfer. Coach Earl Grant was awesome. He's done great things with that program. Um, you know, they're, they're on the up and coming, and he's just done so well. So leaving that program was, was definitely a tough decision. But ultimately, it came down to um, them not having any master's programs that I was interested in. So I was able to graduate physics degree in undergrad from Charleston and then kind of always knew I wanted to do engineering. So when I was looking at uh, programs to transfer to, obviously the basketball was big. I wanted to play at a you know, Power Five conference, big school, um, great fans, great chance to make the tournament. But then I also needed an academic side where it would allow me to succeed outside basketball in the classroom. And Florida was kind of the perfect combination. You know, I had a uh, relationship with Coach Mincy from Charleston. He was one of my first assistant coaches there. And then, you know, we, we had stayed in contact and he was one of my good friends. So uh, when I put my name in the transfer portal, it was kind of just the perfect match. You know, we got down there, got a good visit, good official visit, really liked the staff, liked the program, loved the school, had a great relationship with the nuclear engineering department. So I was able to kind of um, tick everything off my checklist, had a great school, great engineering and great basketball. Yeah, I think you really fit the profile of the true student athlete. And usually we talk to athletes about their time in college. It's all about, you know, on the field, on the court, et cetera. But I guess what, what did being at Florida mean to you? Just the whole experience. What does that mean to you looking back on it? Um, you know, I have such fond memories of my time being a Gator and it was um, a really proud moment for me when I could finally get my master's degree because it was a, a two-year program. So obviously while I was playing, um, it was a challenge to kind of balance the engineering and the basketball. So had to take some of the easier courses and lighter course load just to deal with obviously missing so much school and traveling with the basketball and then playing overseas and playing in the G League and having to take online classes. So, um, you know, I kind of had this great Gator pride because we had such a great run when I was there, made it to the Elite Eight, unbelievable season. And then you know, I never had graduated from the university then. So I kind of felt right. like a, a phony cheering for the Gators and having all this Gator <laughs> pride without my diploma. So when I finally was able to finish up my master's degree from there, it was a, a, a great accomplishment and achievement I'm super proud of. But, um, you know, I can't say enough good things about the University of Florida. You know, it's such a, a family community. I think that's one of the main things is the team's like a family. The staff treats everyone well with respect. The students are unbelievable. The professors, the atmosphere Obviously, the Rowdies, one of some of the best fans in the nation. So it's just a, a culmination of all of that. It just makes Florida such a great experience. You mentioned your relationship with, with Coach Mincy being part of what brought you to Florida to begin with. What was it like playing for Mike White for this coaching staff? You mentioned it was obviously an incredible run you guys had. What made the coaches key to, to making that happen? Um, you know, I think with our year, we had a lot of talent. Um, you know, you, we had even Chris Chios and I coming off the bench where we would probably be starting for, you know, 99% of other countries or uh, teams in the country. So the coaching staff had to do a really good job of trying to manage, you know, everyone's personalities and kind of finding a way to make all that talent work together and fit the system. And I think they did a really good job of that. And it shows in our, um, in our season and our record, uh, all of them are great basketball minds. You know, they understand the game well. And I think it was a, a great testament to them that we could have such a good elite eight run, um, you know, with the grad transfer coming in who didn't know the system very well and kind of had to get to know the other teammates, the other coaching staff, you know, kind of the system that Mike wanted to, to put into effect. So, um, you know, I think they did a great job. And uh, it was one of my, my favorite memories was 
uh, our tournament time together as you know our elite eight team. When you have a, a deep run in the tournament, I'm, I'm sure those moments probably stand out the most. And I could probably guess what your answer is, but when you think about the individual moments, the plays, the games, what stands out from your memory? I mean, it's kind of an obvious question. You, you, you know the answer ahead of time. So I think was the it a block game, by any chance? <laughs> yeah, the Wisconsin game is just, you know, I think one of the best college games I've ever been a part of. And I think one of the best college games to the watch in the last five years, you know, up there with the national mm -hmm. championship and other stuff where just the lead changes, it was close all game, multiple buzzer beaters, the crazy chase down block. Um, you know, the stakes were super high. It's at Madison square garden, a you know, historic storied arena. So it kind of just all came together for the perfect storm of one heck of a game. You talked about the, the deep run in March Madness. I'm curious just in general what the experience was like of playing in the tournament because I know that was a big reason why you wanted to be at a place like Florida as well to have that experience. Was it what you thought it would be? Was it better? How was it different? Just your, your thoughts on that. Um, no, yeah, it was great. I think every kid that plays basketball grows up dreaming about being in the NCAA tournament or, or making the NBA. So to be able to finally accomplish that, especially after Charleston, where we got close a couple of years or lost in the conference finals and just it being a one bid league could never quite get over the hump to make it to the tournament. Finally accomplishing that at Florida was just kind of like a weight off my shoulders. I was like, all right, I like I get to experience it. I was so excited. And um, then, you know, we just kept winning and winning and winning and making a deep run. It was great. You know, I think, you know, we watched the selection show and a bunch of analysts are talking, oh, Florida's prime for an upset. Florida's prime for an upset. We smacked the first team. Oh, they're prime for an upset. We smacked Virginia by 30. <laughs> oh, you know, Wisconsin, there's no way they can be it, you know. And I think we kind of just blocked out all the outside noise and, and focused on us. And, um, you know, I still believe that if John Igbunu hadn't gone down and torn his ACL, I think we would have had a great chance to, to win the national championship that year just with how, you know, the brackets shook out and a lot of, top ranked teams did get upset and we kind of had a great path to the final four. Unfortunately, just couldn't get past a hot South Carolina team who we had just, you know, beaten by 20 the couple weeks before in the O-Dome. And, you know, that's part of NCAA basketball. What makes it so exciting is, you know, they got hot at the right time, had, had great players and were able to make a deep run. But like you said, I think it was just a dream come true to be able to play in the NCAA tournament and then to make it so far was a blessing. And then especially to make it so far in the way that we did with all the buzzer beaters, and chase down blocks and the action just will make an experience I'll never forget. In terms of your time off the court, just being with the guys, what stands out? What do you remember in terms, I don't know if, if there was a particular prank that maybe stuck with you or, or just from, from being around the guys, what do you remember just from, from the locker room? Um, yeah, you know, I think we all had really good relationships, which kind of showed on the court where we were able to compete hard in practice. But then after you get off the court, you know, you get back to being a family and um, coming together and hanging out and meals. You know, some of my favorite memories, we took a trip down. I don't remember the exact beach we went to, but we played a game and then we spent the weekend at a beach together. So that was fun. We all got to go out on the beach, throw the football try to teach a couple of them how to surf. Coach White was out there too. So that was super fun. I know we did a bunch of team building stuff as well with the coaching staff and players and managers. We went paintballing. So that was super fun. So I think anything you can do to just cultivate that family atmosphere and bring guys closer together, you're going to see some, some benefits on the court. Since you left the program, how have you been able to stay in touch? How connected have you been? And, and what's it like now watching the Gators from outside as opposed to being in? No, it's been great. And I think that's 
one of the things that drew me to Florida was after you leave the program, you're still part of the Gator family. So pretty much every off season I've been back in Gainesville for, you know, from a day to two or three months in some off seasons where, you know, coach white and the staff has been unbelievable about giving you gym access, letting you use the weight room. You know, you got Preston green, probably one of the best strength coaches in the country. And he still will write me up programs and all of his interns do an unbelievable job, you know, working with, past athletes as well as current Gator athletes. So that just has been unbelievable for my development uh, in basketball to continue post-graduating. Post so, um, you know, I love my time in Gainesville. Every time I can get back up there, I, I hit up the coaches and see if we can grab dinner or I can stop by a practice. But um, last time I'm up there, it's been tough with COVID. You know, I yeah. couldn't even get in the facility unless you've been COVID <laughs> tested and have you, you got that place on lockdown. So, um, but that's for the best, you know, got to take care of that health and safety of the players and coaches. So I understand, but definitely still have good relationships with all the staff. In terms of your, your former teammates, uh, which ones are you still able to keep in touch with today? What are those relationships like? Yeah, you know, um, I still have good relationships with a lot of my teammates. I, I play against a lot of them in the G League. I was playing against Justin Leon, Chris Giozzo while I was there, Devin Robinson, <laughs> Jalen Hudson. So all those guys, um, I'm still really good friends with Skylar Rimmer. I'm actually going to be in his... Uh, groomsman party he's got a wedding coming up so i'm wow. excited about that and uh, still probably my best friend is uh is matt kraus um he was you know obviously a, a gator legend where he went from, <laughs> from manager to walk on a scholarship his last semester so i'm super tight with him we're still really good friends and you know andrew fava who did the same thing from a, a manager to walk on and then he was able to transfer and get a shot to play a little bit more at a, you know, smaller basketball school. So really proud of him, but you know, I have, I have great relationships with my teammates with, they're all great guys and uh, I'm glad to see they're all doing well. If there was a, a hall of fame for the Rowdies, I imagine Matt Krause would be very high up on that list. Um, speaking of the Rowdies, what do you remember about playing in front of them? And when you've gone elsewhere around the world and playing professionally, how does it compare to the experience of playing in the Odom? I mean, the Rowdies are great. I've, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I think they're some of the best fans in college basketball. Just the atmosphere they provide, the work they put in, the research they do to heckle other, you know, opponents. They get there early. They camp out. They're always loud. They, they just kind of juice you up and give you that atmosphere that makes it a, a fun place to play and a, and a tough place to play if you're an opponent. So, you know, like you said, I played all over and uh, I think there's something to be said about atmospheres in college sports compared to pro, I think. You know, just with the shorter season, each game means more. The fans kind of have something riding on it. They go to the school, the school pride. So um, I still think some of the best games I've played have been, you know, in that Odo. When you wrapped your career at Florida, you obviously had a lot of options given your post-grad work. Uh, what went into the decision to go overseas and continue chasing that dream of playing ball professionally as opposed to going, you know, a different route, given that you had a lot of options? Um, yeah, you know, if my dad always says if, if someone's willing to to pay you to play a game, then you should do that as long as you can. <laughs> and I totally understand it. You know, I mean, uh, my mom always stresses that I had a good fallback plan, which now, of course, I do with the, the master's in engineering. But, um, you know, basketball has just been a passion of mine forever. And, and I love playing it and, you know, being able to make a living playing the sport you love. And it does, doesn't even feel like work. So I'm very blessed to be in, in that kind of situation where I can make my living doing something that I love. 
One of the things I talked to Patrick Young about was the opportunity for basketball to really take you around the world. And between playing professionally in Europe, playing with USA Basketball, uh, what are some of the places you've been able to experience as a result of basketball that, that maybe you wouldn't have traveled to otherwise? Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable what the game has been able to do for me in my life, especially with traveling. You know, I've played in Finland, Czech Republic, China, and then especially with USA B3 on three, the world tour circuit takes you all over. You know, I've been in Brazil, I've been in Amsterdam, I've been in France, I've been in Belgium, you know, just countless places, Hungary, where, you know, who would have thought I'd ever be in Hungary playing basketball when I was growing <laughs> up as a kid? You know, it's something you don't even think about, but um, it really does transcend borders, races, religions. And I think that's part of the beauty of the game of basketball is it brings people together that normally you might not ever um, interact with. I'm curious. I know I, I don't know if you've ever gotten all the way through an interview without being asked about your free throw shooting, but this is a different twist on that question. So I'll ask you this. How has that been received overseas? Do, do you still get the kind of flack that you do here or is it more do they appreciate the purity of it more in Europe? I think it's it's about the same everywhere you go. It's so <laughs> unique and different that whenever you step up the line, you got people doing double takes and gawking at it and but it's just as cash overseas as it was here. So, <laughs> um, You mentioned playing in the G League now and kind of going on that journey overseas, then back here. Uh, where are you in that process and how close do you feel you are to, to cracking the NBA? Um, yeah, you know, with the G League, it's always you're just one step away from, you know, one team liking you or one good season. So that's always the benefit of being in the G League. You know, you kind of turn down more money overseas for – uh, an opportunity to make it here and probably a little bit of an easier lifestyle. You know, you're in America, everyone speaks English, you're <laughs> five month season versus a nine month season. So there, there's give and takes to both. Um, you know, I've had, I've had good times in the G league Timberwolves organization has, has been good to me and I'm excited for this upcoming season in the bubble. And um, I kind of had to stay back and do the G league one more year this year. I was debating going overseas, but with the postponement of the Olympics and mm -hmm all that with three on three basketball, I just couldn't go overseas and still be able to train with, with the USAB and the three on three team. Like I would need to, to, to have a shot to help us qualify and, and be an Olympian. So I'm still super focused on that. And that kind of brought me back to the G league for another season. So I'm, I'm blessed to have this opportunity, especially this year, because uh, we're in the bubble. So they cut down the teams from, I think 28 to 18 or something. So a lot of guys are without a job, which is, pretty relevant in these COVID times. A lot of people are without jobs. So for me to still have one and be able to hoop and continue practicing and getting better and training for the Olympics, it's, uh, I'm very fortunate. I feel like there's been a lot of attention about skateboarding and other and breakdancing being Olympic sports. Not a lot of people are talking about three on three basketball, but I mean, can you tell us how you got involved with that and, and what that path looks like hopefully later this year to Tokyo? Yeah, for sure. So um, I was actually finishing up in the G League and USA Basketball kind of sent out some feelers to G League players to see if they'd be interested in coming to the three-on-three -three nationals. And they did a little training camp before to kind of teach us pro-American players about the game of three-on-three, -three, the different strategies, the roots. And so I was like, yeah, that sounds great. You know, any chance to be an Olympian would be phenomenal. So I jumped on it and went to the training camp, played in the nationals and, um, the Nationals was kind of like a selection committee and they were going to evaluate your play and then they were going to pick a World Cup team. So um, I thought I played really well at Nationals. My team went 0-4, though. We lost every game. So I was like, eh, I don't know. We'll <laughs> see. Don't have great chances. But um, 
you know, they, they obviously saw something that they liked. And I think my game is pretty well suited to three on three being that it's versatile. You know, I can shoot, drive, pass, have a good basketball IQ. So um, all those are crucial in three on three. So I was fortunate enough to be picked for the World Cup, went over there. We won the first men's World Cup for the United States, which was a huge honor being able to stand on the podium with, you know, gold medal around your neck and the flag draped over you and hear the national anthem was just a dream come true and a pretty emotional moment. So that was amazing. And then went to another training camp for the Olympic qualifying team, got selected to be on the Olympic qualifying team. We were in training camp. We were in LA, we were ready to go. And then COVID hit and they postponed the qualifying tournament, delayed the Olympics. So uh, we've just kind of been in limbo these past six, eight months waiting. And now we're finally starting back up again. So we got our Olympic qualifying team back together. We're going to start training here pretty soon. And there's a Olympic qualifying tournament in May um, in Austria. So there's 20 countries going, top three qualify, and uh, hopefully we'll be one of them. In terms of the, the experiences you've had overseas not playing basketball, what what stands out to you? What's something, maybe like a, a local custom, a tradition, a, I don't know, a food that you tried that uh, Patrick Young had a few of those. I think I can't remember what they were. I think I blocked them from my memory because they were disturbing. Uh, but any any experiences overseas that you think about a lot now that you're you're back here? Yeah, so I had some crazy ones in China. So I was in kind of a central China, a, a small city. I think it had millions of people again, which is <laughs> small in China. But right uh, in my city, like barely anyone spoke English. So it's not like Europe where most people have a general understanding of hi, my name's Canyon. Like bathroom food right left and you could kind of you know hodgepodge your conversation together but in china i'm talking about zero english like right. would just stare at me like i was an alien because i'm so tall and blonde and don't look anything <laughs> like a, an asian person so um i remember the food is the hardest part over there because the only american restaurants they have are kfc pizza hut and mcdonald's and I mean, those are good tasting restaurants, but when you're trying to fuel yourself for high level athletic performance, right. <laughs> you're trying to eat McDonald's before the game, it, it's tough. So China was wild. I mean, the food over there is crazy. I was, we're at a buffet and um, I'm with my translator and I think something looks like kebab that you would like shave off the hmm. skewered meat and I, and I get it, I put it on and phew, it was not kebab, it was sort of <laughs> Ow intestine. Oh, it was awful. They had, they had corn juice where they would just squeeze corn into like a carafe of orange juice, but it was corn juice. So I passed on that one. Um, didn't, didn't go for the corn juice or the pig's feet or any of that. But yeah, China was crazy, but it was super fun to be over there. Total culture shock, but got to see the Great Wall, went to Hong Kong, went to Beijing. It was great. I love my time in China. Couple of final things for you. When you look at the future for you, we've talked a lot about basketball, and I know some guys are. I'm just looking at what's in front of me, and others are. I've got you know my five, my ten year plan. Do you know yet what your life will look like after basketball, or is it sort of cross that bridge when you get there? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, obviously, now my focus is on G League, Olympics, um, Olympic qualifying tournament, all that kind of stuff, but. I definitely have thought about what I want to do in the future after basketball. Um, I, you know, have a great degree and great engineering degree. So that's definitely an option. But, you know, sometimes I think, well, I don't really know if I want to sit in front of a desk all day or be writing nuclear code all day. So, you know, I've spent so much time in the gym and dedicated so much of my life to basketball. I always think, well, 
you know, coaching could be an option, whether it be in college or at the pro level, or, uh, you know, I'd love to get into color commentating and uh, sports, you know, SEC network or something like that. So I'm trying to keep all my options open and uh, kind of see where the wind takes me. I doubt you will have any shortage of suitors, uh, no matter what path you choose. So uh, thanks for sharing so much with us today, Canyon. Good luck to you as you uh, proceed on your path, hopefully to Tokyo and the Olympics and, and the NBA as well. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Stay up to date on everything going on with the orange and blue at FloridaGators.com, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators.